You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. That was good. That was good. All right. It's good to have you all here today. I want to welcome everybody watching at home online right now or later on down the road. We're really glad you're tuning in with us. When I was a kid, the greatest cartoon of all time came out. It was called DuckTales. Does anybody remember DuckTales? Yes. And then Disney Plus came out and added DuckTales to the entourage. And I watched it and thought, this show is terrible. <laughs> and I turned on an episode for my kids. And they're like, yeah, I don't get it, Dad. And I'm like, what in the world? Apparently, my childhood was lame. But DuckTales was based around the major character, Scrooge McDuck. And Scrooge McDuck was the richest man in the world. In fact, he was so rich that he had like, I don't know, a treasury the size of this stage or bigger filled with coins, gold coins, and he could actually swim in his gold coins. Do you remember that? He could actually swim. Some of you are like, no, because I'm under 40 years old. Anyway, he could actually swim through his gold coins. And when he did, and he'd swim through them, he could come up and tell you exactly how many were in there. And he could tell you if one was missing. Now, I was a little kid, didn't really believe that was possible. I mean, I'd, I'd had piles of coins before I knew that wasn't possible, but I was a little bit enthralled with the idea of the, the adventures they would go on and the treasure and finding it all and having it all. And then I got older and I started reading news articles from people who had it all and found it all and they weren't happy. There was one point I had back in the, uh, the mid-90s, I had these quotes from all these famous people of the day, guys like Michael Jackson. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him or Harrison Ford, anybody's ever heard of him? And um, there are many, Elvis Presley, and all these people who had accumulated and accumulated wealth and fame and power and were absolutely miserable, miserable. So when I read this book that we're going through right now, I thought, man, there's so much truth and so much wisdom in this because the danger in more is that you become a greedy person. Do you know any greedy people? Keep your hands to yourself if you're sitting next to somebody right now. Happy families, right, when we leave here today. Do you know any greedy people? Now, the reality is it's easy to look at somebody else who you know is greedy and go, that person's greedy. You know who it's hard to look at and know that they're greedy? Yourself. It's hard. And part of the reason is we don't know what it means. So we don't think it applies to us. I got to tell you, after I looked up what greedy really means, hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. And I have tendencies towards greed. Wow, I don't want to say that, but that's the truth. So let's get into it a little bit today. Real quick, we're going to cover two fast points that we covered in week one. We rehashed last week. We'll do it again today. We'll look at it just so we're all on the same page as we're moving forward into today's message. Here we go. First Timothy chapter six, verse eight. A guy named Paul writes to a young protege, a guy's mentoring. His name is Timothy, and he writes this to him. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, the thing I want to emphasize for you here today is foolish and harmful desires. The goal of understanding what Paul is saying to Timothy is to understand there are things that are driving us, and if we follow where they naturally lead, we're going to end up in a bad place. 
They're foolish and they're harmful. So how do we discern the difference between good desires and harmful desires? Is there something that can help us understand that? And today, we're going to answer that question. So here we go, real quick. Paul tells us the answer to all this is to be content. And what contentment is, the working definition that I have, is to be satisfied with what we have, whether we get more or not. That's my definition. This all kind of came from the book Satisfied by Jeff Mannion, which I encourage you to read, though you can't find a physical copy anywhere in the world. But you can find a digital copy and an audio copy, and I recommend you pick it up and read it. And I'm taking a lot of Jeff's ideas, making them my own for today's message. Now, when Paul wrote that letter to 1 Timothy and 1 Timothy to a guy named Timothy, Timothy was in a city called Ephesus. It's an ancient city, one of the largest and greatest cities of the day. It sat on the water fair in what we would call modern-day Turkey. And so a lot of ships coming through, a lot of business, a lot of products coming in off the boats coming from other countries. I know it's hard for us to imagine because this isn't true everywhere in the world today like it is in America. But here in America, when I can go to Kroger and I can get fruits and vegetables unique to various parts of the world, that's what it was like in Ephesus in the day. When I can go to Target or Walmart or wherever you choose to grab things, and I can buy products from all over the world that are brought in. That was ancient Ephesus in the day. People would come in with ships. They'd pick up things from all the world. They'd charge fees on them because they were unique. And ooh, those spices and those colors and those cloths and those whatever, and they bring them in. And so what happened was as the city grew and swelled, more and more people moved in. It became more and more wealthy, lots of business, lots of money, very, very much like various parts of America today. Now, in Ephesus was a temple. The Romans worshipped what we call a pantheon of gods. They had many, many, many gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And they all had these weird legends that were constantly changing to try to make sense of everything. But the people actually worshipped them. And many times, they specifically worshipped the god or the gods represented in their city. And in Ephesus was a temple. It's called in ancient historical writings one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world, and it's the temple of Artemis. This is an artist's rendering of the temple of Artemis, not to confuse an artist and an Artemis. It was roughly a football field long. The base down here was like one and a half football fields, and it was roughly... Uh, a half a football field wide. These columns were like 36 feet tall and six feet around, and the ones on the outside were overlaid with gold. It would have been a sight. Now, you can actually go on to Google later, later, if you want, and you can actually see the ruins of this temple. There's not much of it left, and you can read all kinds of stuff about what happened there. Now, what's interesting is the goddess of this temple that the Roman people went in, they'd make sacrifices to, Artemis had many different things that she did. She over time changed as she was one of the Greek gods and then became a Roman goddess, and uh, her name in Rome was actually Diana. But it's the same goddess. And the thing she was most known for in Ephesus was to be the goddess of fertility. So I want you to get this picture as we're going into today's message. The people of Rome, when they were experiencing fertility issues or they wanted to have a child, they would go into the temple, they would offer a sacrifice to Artemis, and they'd ask her to help them get pregnant. Now, we're going to take that little piece of information and we're going to set it aside for just a moment. But what is it like to live in a city where that is such a big deal to you, 
that you're willing to take in your own money, your own resources, and sacrifice them, give them to a statue, and ask that statue to do something for you? What is the anxiety in a culture with so many resources, such an abundance of stuff, that they actually could give away their stuff in hopes of getting something that will give them more meaning and more value? Now, the other thing that was really big in Ephesus, and I showed you this in week one, just kind of in the video that we showed from Jeff Mannion, was there was this huge outdoor amphitheater. Here we go. Here's what it looks like. This is actually a modern day picture of the amphitheater itself. I don't know if you can fully make that out here, but you get an idea of just the scope of just how big this thing is. Now, they didn't have microphones and things. These things are unbelievably designed. You could actually stand down here on the stage and you could talk just like this and people all the way up here at the top could hear you because the the acoustics were so perfectly laid out. And they would come here and they would do these plays and people all in the city of Ephesus would fill this thing up. Apparently COVID was not a thing in the day. And they would fill this thing up and watch the play. And one of the most famous plays that would happen there on that stage was a play about the Oedipus Rex, a famous Greek play. And in this play, there's a king and a queen who got an oracle that they're going to give birth to a son and that son is going to overthrow the king. So after having the son's legs pinned together, they handed the son to the servant and told the servant to get rid of the son. As the story would go, you can look it all up later if you're curious. You can read all about it and find about how that son ended up being adopted by somebody else. And then that person did end up becoming raised. And the oracle was true. And he overthrew his daddy and blah, blah. And you can't trick fate. That was the point for the Greeks. But here's what's ironic. Even though this play played out on this stage, and it should have been a tragedy that a father gave birth to a son, and yet he didn't even want his son because he was too afraid. He was greedy for his own life. So he gave up his son. It was not at all shocking to the people watching the play. Why is that? Well, in ancient Roman culture, and in a city like Ephesus in the day, it was not uncommon for when people had a baby, they would take the baby, they would present it to the dad. And the dad, at that moment, either took the child and embraced it or turned around and walked away from the child and wanted nothing to do with it. At that point, if the father chose not to embrace the child, the child was exposed to the elements. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our sermon when we talked about life and the value of life. When they exposed the child to the elements, they would often, at least in Ephesus, take it out into a field, and if it was super cold, leave it out there to either freeze to death, or if it was in the hot of the summer, take it out there, and it would basically dehydrate. Now, what would happen is people in the city would come through after hearing the wails and the cries of a baby, and they would go shopping. There was actually a book put out by an ancient Greek doctor named, make sure I get this right, Serranos, I believe is how you say it, Serranos, and a Serranus, I don't know how you say it, but anyway, he wrote a book called How to Recognize the Newborn that is Worth Rearing. And the whole idea was, <clears throat> if you were having a child, how to look at your child just from the moment it was born and go, This is going to be a strong, healthy, productive, beneficial baby to keep. Or if you're shopping in a field, to choose which baby you might take in. Now, why would people choose a baby? Well, there's a couple reasons. Like, maybe the dad wanted a daughter, so he got rid of the son. Or maybe the dad wanted a son, so he got rid of the daughter. Or maybe it had a a birthmark somewhere on his face, and he didn't want a birthmark. That's not a beautiful baby. 
And so, by the way, I don't believe that. That's the kind of things that we read about in history that could be true. Perhaps it had some sort of birth defect or something it didn't look right or didn't have the right color of hair. Whatever it is, the dad rejected the child. And so the child then was placed in the field. And now if you want to go and pick up the leftovers because you want to raise a slave. And this was normal in Ephesus. Does this sound greedy to you? Something's broken in the city of Ephesus. And so what would happen is people would go through and they would look for the babies that, that they wanted either to be a slave to work for them or another kind of slave that I won't go into, but you can use your imagination. It wasn't good. Now, the reason that's relevant is because the city of Ephesus had an abundance of resources, lots of money, lots of stuff, but no happiness or miserable. They couldn't find the thing that was going to satisfy them. So they keep chasing something else and chasing something else and chasing something else. And their whole life structure was built around pleasing themselves to the point where even babies were cast aside. And I am afraid sometimes how much this sounds like America. But that's not even the focus of today's message. I want you to get that backdrop. So as you pick up Paul's letter to Ephesus, he later writes a letter and he sends it to the church in Ephesus. And when he does, I want you to hear what he says and the way it connects to today's message as it relates to greed. Now, let's take a look. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Paul writes, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he, notice the word here, what is it? He chose us. He's like a dad who went through the field and saw babies and said, I want that one. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. When did God choose us? I want you to get this. When did God choose us? Before anything was built. Why is that relevant? Because it was never about your ability to be good enough or beautiful enough or to nail it perfectly. It was never about your performance. It was something he did before we popped onto the scene. Why? Because he's a good God who loves Not for all the things you get right. And his love doesn't go down for all the things you get wrong. He is fully committed to you. Now, let's keep going. He predestined us for adoption to sonship. Through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And I love this. The one, the reason it's capitalized here is because he's pointing to Jesus. So, because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and was perfect with God, before God, obeyed God in every way, and God loves him, so God loves us in him. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your worst day. He doesn't see your failure. He sees Jesus, who was perfect in every single way. And that leads to adoption to sonship. 
The Christians, understanding the heart of the gospel, receiving Paul's letter, started realizing all that God has done in them. They started going through the fields and grabbing all the babies. Any baby they could find out there, they'd bring them in. The Christian homes would take them. This is where the first uh, orphanages came from. We'll take them. We'll raise them. We don't care what the issues are. We'll deal with it because God has taken us in so freely and in Jesus given us his love, his care. This is why, by the way, I'm so passionate about foster care and adoption. It's such a big deal to me because this is who I am to God. I am adopted, me. And by the way, you too. Then he goes on, he says in verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Notice what he's trying to get to. Why does he use the word riches here? Because he wants you to know above anything else you ever get. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter what kind of house you live in. It doesn't matter what name brands on your clothes. At the end of the day, you have been lavished with God's riches by God's grace. Because God didn't do for you what your actions earned. God did for you what you could not do for yourself by giving you eternal life. And as I said last week, how do you divide infinity? You can't divide infinity. It's infinite. Good luck. Everybody's got the same portion. Doesn't matter if you start early or start late. You cannot divide it. And that's what God has given to us in Jesus, which he richly lavished on us. Paul goes on. He says, he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Why is this so powerful? Because I have a theory. At the end of the day, the reason we are so tempted by money and our culture, by stuff and our culture, is because we all have an identity issue. All of us. Now, some of us might be further down the road in, in crucifying that identity issue, but we all have an identity issue. We ask little kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I was thinking I would just be me. Was there, was there a problem with being me? But we mean something by that, right? If you want to be a teacher, if you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be a whatever, a mathematician, if you want to be a business owner, that's going to be part of your identity. We ask little kids, you know, what sports do you play? As if the sport becomes your identity. How are your grades? As if the grade becomes our identity. And how many times have you seen a middle school boy or girl seeking for their identity and their approval and what everybody else thinks of them? We talk about these things often in our home because it's the natural byproduct of a world where I feel insecure that I am enough. And so I look for something to tell me I'm enough. And Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, you're enough. You're enough because God loves you. And getting more, doing more, experiencing more will not change that one way or the other. And he said, he says it's true of you and me. And that's so important. Because until we understand that something is driving us to buy and gain and accumulate and take in, we'll just keep doing it. And until we rest our souls in who he says we are, we'll just keep chasing it. And it'll never be enough. In the book, Jeff Mannion says, this is the power of identity in Christ. The gift was not only revolutionary for Christians in first century Ephesus, it has profound ramifications for believers today. Your new identity through God's adoption means that you are most defining reality is not 
sorry, your most defining reality is not who abandoned, betrayed, or deserted you. However painful and scarring those events were, your identity is not defined by the fiance who broke off the engagement, the company that canned you, the parent who left you, or the spouse who betrayed you. Your most defining moment is not determined by who threw you out, but who took you in. The God of creation adopted you. And as Jeff said so eloquently in the book, and I didn't quote him, before Paul could tell the church in Ephesus how to behave, he had to first tell them that they belonged. Imagine now with me for a moment that you live in first century Ephesus and somehow you came to knowledge of who God is and that he sent his one and only son to adopt you and bring you to himself, to love you, to lavish you with his love through the riches of his grace. Now imagine that's your story. Except for that some of you are slave owners, some of you are parents who've cast away children, some of you are actually slaves, children abandoned to the field and brought in by somebody, maybe a Christian family, or perhaps brought in by somebody else, but you found your way to Jesus. Imagine being one of those children now raised in the city, how many others are like you? How many times have you walked through the streets making eye contact with other people wondering, is that my mom or dad? They have dark hair like me. They have this kind of nose like I do. Always wondering where you fit in. And then you show up in the church and Paul says, you fit in right here. Because whether young or old or male or female, educated, uneducated, rich or poor, it's all irrelevant we are all adopted sons and daughters of God. Yeah, that's what you're here for, isn't it? Now, you go back and read the book of Ephesians sometime. By the way, I came to this conclusion about, I think it was about four or five years ago. It was the year, never mind. It was the year that the Cavs won the championships. That's how I remember it. Because I was running um, at, at halftime, whatever, in between the games. And I'd come back and watch the end of the game. And I remember because they finally won that year. That's how I remember it. Anyway. Regardless, I remember coming to this conclusion because I'd always been confused by the book of Ephesians because Ephesians ends with some of the strongest language about sin and greed and idolatry you will find in the whole Bible. So strong. And those words used to convict me, but you know what they would do? They would make me feel insecure as if I wasn't good enough because I can always see a way that I don't measure up quite to the standard of Jesus Christ. But then I started reading Ephesians like this, and it changed everything. We did a whole sermon series on this, where I married Luke 15 to the book of Ephesians, and we overlaid the two together, because I began to understand the heart of a father who says, I love you so much that there's nothing you can do to make me love you more or less. However, I love you so much, I refuse to leave you where you are. I have a desire to see you transformed, changed. I want you to feel and know the peace and the joy that comes from living life the way that I have said and to not buy into the lies of this world and to not be tricked into buying more and accumulating more and thinking that it's there. Your closets, your basements, your attics are full of stuff that was supposed to bring you lasting happiness. And it did for a moment. But the reason why we keep filling up those spaces in our houses with more stuff is because we keep trying to find it somewhere other than God himself. And it'll never work. Now, he goes on. Ephesians chapter one, Paul says this, verse 13. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. And oh man, I got to unpack this one for you because when I read that, you should have been, yeah, yeah, you should have been like, yes. Now, it was common in that day for slaves to be marked. Imagine a tattoo, say, on your hand. Now, imagine you come into the little gathering of Christians in Ephesus, and you're in a little Bible study, and everybody knows who the abandoned child in the field was. Your identity is right there for everybody to see. And then Paul comes along, and he says, you know what your greatest identity is? It's not that. It's this thing in here. And nobody can see it, but everybody sees there's something different about you. They can't fully explain it, but there's something inside you. There's something that's changed. God marked you as his own. So yeah, when these parents would find these babies and bring them in and then mark them and then raise them and then make them a slave, God says, no, 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 no. I found you, I chose you, I marked you, but I didn't put it on the outside of your flesh. I put it right here in your heart. I put the Holy Spirit inside you to move you and to stir you, to drive you, to push you, to encourage you, to fuel the fire and the flame inside you, to keep on towards that which God has taken hold of us for. Life, eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Do you know why we go into the waters of baptism and up out? The reason we don't sprinkle here at Kingsway, not only do we say the word baptizo in the Greek, it's the Greek word for baptism, it means to dunk or immerse, is because we want to make it a watery grave. We want to go into those waters and leave the old identity behind. The old things that I used to strive after and push for and chase after to make me happy or to make me satisfied or fulfilled, they're all dead now. They're in the past. I left them in the grave and I came up alive now marked, not on my flesh with a tattoo, marked in my heart with the Holy Spirit, a promise, a foretaste of what is to come when Jesus returns. Yes, that's good news. That's what we call it, good news. I want to show you something. Go back to, with me to verse 13, if you will. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. A seal is something that a king would put on a document to certify this is mine. And everybody knew the king's seal. You couldn't fake it. It was unique. It was one of a kind. And God has marked you. It's unique. One of a kind. Again, I love the way Jeff Mannion says this. He picked you out. He picked you up. And he brought you home. Now, why is all of that relevant? Because once you get out of Ephesians chapter one and you find yourself in Ephesians chapter five, God's got some rules for his family. He's got some house rules, if you will. That was just the intro, by the way. We got another 45 minutes of sermon left. I'm just kidding. But he's got some house rules to help guide how the family is supposed to live different in the world. He says things like, wives, submit to your husbands. Who in the world does that? And then he says, husbands, you love your wife. Your wife, not wives. You love your wife. Husbands, plural husbands, loving singular wives, okay. The way that Jesus Christ loves the church. 
And then he clarifies, in case you don't know what that means, he says he gave himself up for her. So yes, wives, you submit to your husbands, but husbands, you give up everything for her. And he says, by the way, children, you obey your parents. Well, how in the world can we pull that off? That seems pretty impossible. Well, it's because God chose you and he marked you and the Holy Spirit inside you is fueling you. He's giving you the strength and the power and the will and the courage and the desire to obey so that even when you don't feel like it, it's there. You only have to lean into him. Then he goes on Ephesians 5 and he says this, Paul does. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Your children, your sons and daughters of the king and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And the same way that Jesus loved you, love God, love other people, love your spouse, love your children. And then he goes on in verse three, and he has the audacity to say this, but among, among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. There's a temple to the goddess Artemis in this city, Paul. Everybody's caught up in this. There are public bathhouses and secret pathways that go to those public bathhouses where unspeakable things happen, Paul. Everybody's doing it. Paul says, but you won't because you were bought. You were sanctified. It means you were made holy. You're loved, you're adored, you're adopted. Walk in the family. And then he goes on. And he says, or of any kind of impurity, or of, and where's that word? Greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Now, I want you to imagine. See, when I was a teenager and I would read Ephesians 5, it was a list of rules of things I can't do and things I have to do. And it was a burden, an albatross, a thing I carried around my neck like kryptonite. It was my weakness. I couldn't succeed. Then I started to read Ephesians like this, and I started to understand this isn't an albatross, a kryptonite that I carry around my neck. This is a calling. This is a gift from a holy God who says, I love you so much. I want you to experience life that is really life, and here's how you get it. You understand whose you are. That changes who you are, which then impacts how you live. Whose you are changes who you are, which then changes how you live. And you're not leaving, living in order that God will love you. He already loves you. You're living out of that abundant love. Now, the word greed here, since this is where we started, where I need to get to, the word greed literally means to covet. Do you remember the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's things, or whatever it is, right? What's the exact word there? I don't know. I'm not a King James guy. Coveting, it literally means numerically more. Well, that's pretty lame. All right, we'll give you a little more. It implies a desire for more things. In other words, lusting for a greater number of temporal things that go beyond what God determines is eternally best. Well, how do I know what God determines eternally best? That is a fantastic question. There are certain things that are fixed. One spouse, not more than one. That's fixed from the Garden of Eden all the way through. How much stuff is too much stuff? Well, you have to figure that one out with God. But I know this, if you're not satisfied with what you have now, more will not change that. It will never change that. 
And maybe it would be beneficial for you to just stop and ask yourself, why do I want more? Do I believe having more will make me better? Make me happier? Make me more significant? Because the simple answer is no. You are enough right now. Paul goes on in verse four and he says, just to be clear, there's more to this, nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Remember what we've been saying about giving thanks? One of the answers to being dissatisfied or discontent is to give thanks to God. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, person, such a person is an idolater, we'll get there in a second, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let this one sink in for a second, all right? This is serious stuff. You can be sure no immoral, no impure, or greedy person. This person is an idolater. Idolatry is basically when they would go into these temples like the one of Artemis, and they would worship an idol and hope that the idol would do something for them that would make them significant. They had idols for everything you could imagine. Successful businesses, relationships, fertility, war, power, resources, money, you name it, they had a goddess or a god for every single one of those things. At the end of the day, it was not about a statue. It's about what's going on in here. So today, when I would read my Bible for decades, I would go, well, I'm not an idolater. I've never even bowed down to an idol before. But the idol serves a function in the human's life. My life, your life. Is there an idol in your life that you're bowing down to? Because Paul says, if so, you're a greedy person. A person who is not satisfied with what God has given you, but the only way you could be happy is if God gives you more. And you take these two things and you blend them together and the danger is, this kind of person has no inheritance. See, a son or a daughter gets inheritance. And a son or a daughter, how much inheritance does a son or a daughter get? Well, here on earth, my kids will divide up whatever I got left in the end. My parents have promised us being of good, sound mind and body, they're leaving us nothing. So I hope to leave my kids something. I don't know that that will actually be true, but they've joked about it for years. They're like, better enjoy us now. So uh, one day I'll leave my kids something. Let's say I leave them $1,000 because that's pretty easy math. There's three kids. They'll each get $333 and $1 will go to the church. No, I'm just kidding. Whatever it works out to, they're going to divide what it is evenly. But there's a limited amount. With God, it's infinite. How are you going to divide his inheritance? How are you going to divide Scrooge McDuck's inheritance? How are you going to divide infinity? You can't. But are you willing to trade whatever you're chasing after today for infinity. Because that's the offer. Infinite love, infinite safety, infinite care, infinite provision, infinite. It's an offer for you and me today. Which is why I am convinced that the way that we deal with this is we anchor our heart in him and the antidote to that, because I can be greedy sometimes. The antidote to that is to become a generous person. It's the only way I know how to deal with it is that when I'm tempted to get more and have more for me, I give more and I do more for others. It's the only way I know to do it. 
Over the last month or so, I got convicted. I tell you guys things in sermons. You may or may not have been here. You may not have heard it. That's fine. But I was convicted by God about six, eight weeks ago or so. And I got stuff in my garage that I'm not using. It's sitting around. I started reading this book. It's convicting me more. It's all part of what God's doing in my life. He keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. So I keep trying to sell stuff. And the more stuff I sell, the more I get. And instead of spending that money on me, we're giving it away. And God keeps giving more. It's amazing to me. Like our washing machine just recently busted and like we're literally plugging it in and unplugging it so that it'll reset so we can use it again. And we're trying to just keep it going a little longer. And then a family member came along and gave us money. We can now buy a washer when we can't do this anymore. But I was tempted every step of the way as I have sold about $1,000 worth of stuff. I'm like, man, I can just take that money and buy a washer. Maybe that's God's provision, but I already heard God's voice tell me to be generous. So we're writing checks to missionaries and helping people who can't eat in foreign countries. And I'm loving it. My kids are in on it. They're excited about it. The answer to the greed in your heart that I need more to be happy is to give more away. Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. And then he goes on in verse eight and he closes with, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. I don't know exactly how this message is going to hit you, but my hope and my prayer is this. May you leave here today knowing whose you are, so therefore who you are, and therefore may you rest your soul in him. Let's pray about that right now. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, would you reveal to us your... God, we thank you uh, that Jesus taught us to call you Father because that is what you are. And you're not a dad like any earthly dad we've ever had. And those of us who had the best earthly dads there ever was, like my kids, uh, Father, pales in comparison to you. Because you are always present, always available, always loving, always kind. Even in your discipline, when it hurts, it's for our good. So God, we thank you for your words that both set us free and convict us at the same time. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, those who don't know you yet and those who know you. God, I pray that you would reveal to us your goodness, your care, your love. God, may we see the messages the world throws at us and the traps they lay before us to have and buy and get more. And Lord, may we understand them for what they are. May we see the truth and may the truth set us free. And today, God, may you convict us in our hearts of what we can do to partner with you in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, 